Hi, this is Jonathan, and I just wanted to take a moment to explain a few things before letting this episode start. This is one of the first things I recorded when I was trying to start a podcast, and the show wasn't called New Ears then, it was a look at my favorite band. New Ears will continue to look at this band through the course of its existence, but this content is still good and I'm very pleased with how it turned out. So I just wanted to explain to you up top that even though it isn't a New Year's episode, it most certainly is. Usually at the end of an episode, I give the album that we'll be covering next time. Since I did not do it this time, I'd just like to point out that our next episode will be about the indie rock masterpiece, Built to Spills, Perfect from Now On. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the second episode of the JOA cast, parenthetical, live in Chicago 2015, and parenthetical. I'm your host, Jonathan Humphrey. Today we'll be discussing Joan of Arc's second album, How Memory Works. Released on May 12, 1998, the liner notes of this album and the previous one contain the phrase, a portable model of dot dot dot, how memory works, implying that it is the second part of a whole piece. At the time of this recording, Joan of Arc consisted of Tim and Mike Kinsella, Sam Zurich, Jeremy Boyle, and Eric Bosek. To those of you who listened to episode one, it should come as no surprise that I will be discussing this album with my dear friend Raul Clement. Hey everybody, um, I'm Raul, and I'm eager to discuss the album. So. Excellent, I'm eager too. But before we get into discussing the album, just so we can get it out of the way, if there's any non-time-sensitive stuff you'd like to promote, now is the time. The big thing would be my novel that I had just come out. It's co-written with Oakla Elliott, and it's called The Doors You Mark Are Your Own. And interestingly enough, it's on the same press as Tim Kinsella's new book, um, Tim Kinsella being the singer and mind behind Joan of Arc. So there's a little tie in there. Anyway, you can uh, get it online at all the major outlets, Amazon, Powell's, uh, Barnes & Noble. You can buy it directly from the publisher. It's in bookstores all over the country. So if you feel like doing that instead, maybe just swing by your local bookstore. Hopefully it's there. They'd probably order it if you know you requested it so anyway yeah i guess that's the major thing yeah uh, i'd also like to add that raul and i are working on a podcast together it's going to be called p is for podcast and it's going to be right here on this very podcast network obviously well before before we talk about the album let's just go ahead and uh, i'll do a little bit of of a music biography myself afterwards but why don't you say what your relationship to joan of arc was before listening to this album for this podcast I guess my relationship is mostly through you, honestly. Um, now, of course, I'd heard of them and heard them years and years and years ago. Um, I definitely had a lot of friends who listened to Captain Jazz and, you know, various Kinsella projects. Mm. Um, my good friend from childhood, Joe McDonough, um, is a big Captain Jazz fan. So, like, whenever I'd go hang out at his house, you know, he'd you know, one time out of three, he'd probably play it. So, um, so I'm, I'm more, I was more familiar with them coming in, mm. but, um, you know, I'd listened to Joan of Arc through you. And of course the listeners won't know this, but we wrote a show called dinner at Caligula's, um, which is coming out on HBO next year. That's, that's a joke. But, <laughs> but, it, uh, but it very hopefully might be coming out on this very network. Right, right, right. We might do a podcast version of it. 
and maybe one day an animated version, which you can find on YouTube or something. Um, yeah. But anyway, so on that show, there's an episode that's sort of centered around, well, this album, I guess. Well, it's, it's actually centered around a song from the album right. after this one. Yeah. But, but, the, but the subtitle the title, of the episode exactly. is How Memory Works, and there's a big reference to that. Right, 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 right. I was going to mention that, that the song is actually not, on, <laughs> yeah, but we, we, we based it around a Joan of Arc song. So there's some familiarity there. Yeah, um, definitely. And so that's the extent of my relationship. I had heard this album before, but never really listened to it kind of chronologically with real attention. Mm-hmm. So this was my sort of first go around on that. I listened to it, I guess, four total times. Um, Three just as listens, the fourth to sort of take notes and stuff. So yeah, totally. hopefully I'll have something semi-coherent and intelligent to say about it. Right, right. Well, <laughs> to the extent of my uh, abilities. <laughs> right, right. Well, as listeners probably know, my relationship with Joan of Arc is a long, long one. But this is the first Joan of Arc album I actually owned. Um, when I was in early in high school... I was into Captain Jazz, and I had a friend try to play me Joan of Arc, but I was still a little too young, and I was like, no, this is weird. And then I moved to to Greensboro, and I was really broke, but I found this album used at Ed McKay's, and I was like, maybe I should just give this a try, because I only remember bits and pieces. And so this is the first Joan of Arc album I've ever owned, and it's been with me a long time. That being said... Just, just you're based on your feelings. What, what did you feel about this album? How did you enjoy it? Where would you put it as a whole, like an enjoyment? For me, it was surprisingly accessible given my sort of preconceptions about Joan of Arc. Not that I had negative preconceptions, but you know they can be a difficult band, and um, you know they sort of sometimes challenge notions of what a song even is. And then, of course, you know, a lot of the reasons some musicians don't like them is because he does sing out of tune. You <laughs> yeah, know I mean, like it's not. I think it's intentional. good singing. I'm, I'm using scare quotes here. Good, you know what I mean? Right. And I think it is intentional to a certain extent because if you listen to some other projects, it's not quite. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think he does it to draw if you, if you compare it to like owls or whatever. Um, but like. Or even later Joan of Arc right, albums, yeah. even, depending on what the, the vibe of the album is. Right, right, right. And I, I mean, I, I'm going to say that I doubt he's like, you know, an, like an operatic level singer. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's, he's limited to a certain extent, but I think he does emphasize those limitations almost in a weird way. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, because you, um, you remember when we worked with Jason Wiggs, Mm -hmm. he was not a Joan of Arc fan at all. And I think his main complaint was about musicianship and just how horrible they'd been live when he'd seen them. Yeah. And And I mean, again, they are all talented musicians, but there is, there is some kind of like deconstructing going on in general. Right. Um, Well, yeah, well let's, let's kind of just dive right into, (coughs) to the conversation about the album. What do, you, what do you think the title means? What do you think the concept is of the album and how does that relate to the title from what you experienced? That was actually going to be my first question to you because I'm having a hard time understanding the lyrics in the context of the title. I detected certain themes and certain repeated images and phrases and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a lot about teeth, <laughs> swimming pools, mouths stuttering and mumbling i think there's stuff about like trying to connect and not connecting 
I got a lot of that. Um, you know, there seems like to be several songs about kind of being in a drunken haze and I don't know. Um, so there were things that I, I got, you know, and there was like some, a few romantic themes in there too. Um, at least the last two songs felt more like they were about a specific woman or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but all trying to put all that together with how memory works, the only thing I can think of is that these are his sort of personal and fragmented memories, possibly, because he has a lot of very specific images that aren't ex- explained and kind of just jump out of nowhere. Yeah. And memory does work that way to an extent. Like you remember little uh, snippets, you know, little fragments of things. You don't remember a continuous narrative. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that I'll go ahead unless you have something you'd like to add to kind of explain, you know, this is the first Joan of Arc album I've heard. And we, I kind of have to discuss it a little bit as a companion piece to a portable model of, but isolated when I first listened to it and was like, Oh, this is a concept album. I need to focus on it. You know, back when I first got the album, I did think it was like, well, memory is a little disjointed. And another thing is like, you look, you look through these songs and some of them feel like they're personal narratives and some of them feel like they're just completely made up narratives about something entirely. But you look at these songs and you're like, every one of these songs, like the narrator or the, who the story is about. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe in this one. It's more about the singer than other Joan of Arc albums. And we'll get into, I'll get into that in a second, but I believe that whoever the singer is, you're either seeing a particularly high point of their life or a particularly low point of their life. And that's also a little bit about how memory works. You don't remember like the middle ground. You remember the, like the good moments, the best moments, and you remember your worst moments. Now, this is something, and, and we're going to discuss this at a later date and, and, and record it and put it into one of the first two episodes, but this is a companion piece to a portable model of, and upon listening for this podcast, I saw connections that I never saw before. I, I don't want to take Tim Kinsella beyond face value, but I truly believe, and I hope this doesn't influence anyone's listen of a portable model of, but I totally believe that a portable model of is a little bit about... I think it's it's kind of the story with some other stories we've done, but it's the story of a young man who has kind of found his first love, and within like a month or two of finding his first love, his band goes out to tour the country for the first time, and it's just like this youthful embrace, this youthful like I'm going to take on the world, but at the same time there's something back there waiting for me. And so the band, it, this, the band and these songs become a portable model of the moments that created that part of his life. Now, the lyrics in that song are written from a more youthful place. So I feel that that implies that how memory works is the same tale, only less personalized because he's connecting his memories to stories of other people. But it's the same. And it's also like hindsight is twenty twenty. So I think it's telling the the same stories, but from a place of older reflection. I think one thing that that may be personal, and what we'll discuss it more in the track by track, is there's a couple mentions of reflective surfaces. Without saying reflective surfaces, but like a swimming pool, or there's a line where checking my hair and the armor. Like there's a lot of reflective surfaces, so it, it does feel like he's reflecting back on the same stories that made up the first part of this. Right. Yeah, and I couldn't have constructed that coherent like a narrative at this point um i think an album with like dense and abstract lyrics and when i say dense 
I mean, that's maybe a little bit misleading because his lyrics are somewhat minimalist. You know, if you look at the lyric sheets, typically very short, like a you know a couple stanzas, mm. and he repeats things. And uh, but you it's, know, it's not it's done intentionally, like very right. like brevity is the soul of wit. Right, of. right, right. And like, um, but what I mean by density is, you know, there's a lot of like wordplay. There's a lot of references. There's a lot of just abstract stuff that's hard to parse. And so I think with something like that, to construct a kind of narrative takes a little bit longer. Um, you know, it takes more lessons. Mm-hmm. So maybe on lesson 20, I would have, you know, come up with your narrative or even a totally different one. Now, of course, I should say that I haven't done the homework on a portable model of that you did. So um, I'm a little limited in terms of talking and, about it in, in, in the context of other albums. And that's so, fine. And we'll talk more about that somehow in between the two of these episodes. But it like, might end up being a little bit weird because a portable model of episode will be recorded later, yeah, even but, though it's an earlier album. Yeah. It's so the in first a way, album. you know, the sequence will be off, but I think that could be interesting in itself, but we'll see. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, is there any, one other thing I'd like to say in comparison before we, we try to look at it as its own thing is in a portable model of like, cause there's this feeling of distance throughout this album and there's like these sparse starts. There's, I mean, Joan of Arc always uses like a lot of dwindling guitars and stuff, but there'll be parts where it's like just guitar and kind of like a droney noise track and it creates the sparseness. And I feel like this album well, has it has a lot of the same instrumentation as that album. It condenses it so it's less sparse. And it goes to with like that first album, he's floating across the country in tour and in love. And this album, he's just seeing these compact moments of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Is uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about the album as a whole? Yeah, I guess to, to, to touch on that, to me, there's a really... I can buy your interpretation because there's a really nostalgic kind of feel to the album almost a little uh i don't want to say like sentimental but it has like that kind of bittersweet feel so that that sort of connects with looking back on something and, and seeing uh, the highs and the lows and right 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 and then also with the tour stuff there, there there are a lot of songs that have like images of like parties or like things like that so i i, I can totally buy it like you know party with a swimming pool and whatever and some girl and you know you're you're reading a lot between the lines because his approach is so abstract and somehow both dense and minimalist well, like i said and so it's, it's you know one thing that's good about that approach of course is that it allows for like multiple interpretations i'm sure that i could listen to these songs over and over and construct a different meaning each time if i wanted to or if it just popped into my head. Yeah, well, and sometimes that's that's a, a point that will be brought up a lot in this podcast, I'm sure, is one of the things I love about his lyrics is I can be in a certain mood and listen to a song and hear it this one way, and then I can be in a completely different mood and listen to the same song and just hear a completely different thing out of it. And I, th- I feel like that's really strong in this album, especially. Mm-hmm. And I do think another thing is more so than the first album and other albums, although Tim Kinsella is a referential writer, how memory works is is a very referential album it's referential in a lot of ways to a lot of things and i feel like that's part of how memory works we attach our memories to ideas and thoughts of others so that's that's another statement i'd have about that album too um cool well um if you don't mind maybe we should 
pause for just a second before we get into the sort of track by track discussion. Are we going to do the track by track discussion? Yeah, now? I would love to. If you're ready to do the track by track discussion, I think we've kind of just hit on all the major points of this. For right. Me. Yeah, and covered yeah. the broad themes. Kind and of stuff, the so. broad theme. So we're gonna we're gonna take a break. Maybe have a word from our sponsor, and uh, we'll be back with the track by track discussion of how memory works by Joan of Arc. Today's episode of the JOA cast is being brought to you by The Doors You Mark Are Your Own. The first novel in the Joshua City trilogy, The Doors You Mark Are Your Own, is a post-apocalyptic literary epic that blends elements of Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and Golden Age Hollywood. Sweeping in scope and often postmodern in form, its DNA is equal parts Margaret Atwood, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and Frank Herbert. The Doors You Mark Are Your Own has received praise from major sci-fi venues such as SF Signal and Rising Shadow, as well as authors Kyle Miner and Craig Nova. Pinkney Benedict has said the following, If Vladimir Namakov and Philip K. Dick had made it and produced a genius baby, that baby might well have grown up to write The Doors You Mark Are Your Own, inspired, thrilling literary madness of the best possible sort. The Doors You Mark Are Your Own is available in paperback and all major ebook formats. You can purchase a copy from barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, directly from the publisher at curbsidesplendor.com, or in hundreds of bookstores nationwide. Hello and welcome back to the JOA cast, parenthetical, live in Chicago 2015 in parenthetical. We're about to do a track-by-track track of the album How Memory Works. Uh, obviously, if you're start doing a track-by-track, track, you got to start with track one. The first track off of How Memory Works is a, a little intro piece entitled Honestly Now. This is Honestly Now. It's, a, it's kind of a little intro track to the song. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, I enjoy it, especially in the context of the album. You know, it's it's 40 seconds, so it's not, you know, it's not very obtrusive in any way. You wouldn't want to start an album in like a seven-minute instrumental thing if if you intend to have lyrics and singing. Mm. If it's an instrumental album, that'd be okay, obviously. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I like I like albums that do this that just have a little sort of mood creating thing to lead off of course there's cool things going on you know with uh, some of the sounds well for example the one interesting thing of course is how it bleeds into the next track so in a way it's it, it's actually the instrumental introduction to gen and platonic mm -hmm. um another interesting thing is kind of how some of the sounds from this track have or you hear echoes of them later on like uh, in uh this life cumulative Toward the end of that that song, which we'll you know discuss later, and mm -hmm. I'll I'll point out mm -hmm. uh, again. But uh, there's something that's very reminiscent of that. Uh, how would you describe that? Like high pitched kind of the like whirring, the, yeah. and the whining. Yeah, definitely. And and maybe this this kind of leads to one of my points about the track. And I do feel like it kind of creates an aesthetic for the whole album. Is that it's simultaneously very wistful and mechanical. Like, in a weird way, like, there's this very, like, wistful longing to it, but also this really cold mechanicalism to it at the exact same time, and it's a balance. I mean, do you see that? Do you feel that in that song? Right, yeah, no, I could imagine, you know, if you were to use it in a film, imagine, and maybe I'm just saying this because I wrote a sci-fi novel, but um, imagine, like, a sort of 
dystopian factory setting with sad robots working, you mm-hmm. know? Like and then like one that. staring wistfully off into the window. Right, exactly, exactly. Right, um, right exactly. Screenwriting 101. Right, you know, and then there's some sort of, uh, or, you know, maybe most of the robots are happy, but there's this one robot who is sad and wants to break free of his, you know, exactly. well, mundane existence. Well, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the title of the song i have i have one but i'd love to know if you do uh none really i mean it's hard to have as many thoughts about a song title when the song is instrumental because there's no interplay between the title and lyrics right well then let me see if you agree or or how you feel about the way i interpret it uh I think if you're looking at how memory works as like a reflection of a section of life, the title is honestly now referring to, okay, it's time to quit idealizing. It's time to quit. Let's look at things for what they are face value. So, I mean, does that make sense to you? Did you, do you see it in that context now that I said that? Or do you, do you still kind of like, eh, it's just an instrumental song? Um, no, um, cause I hadn't really considered it in the, you're considering it in the context of the whole album. So I was, you know, I interpret the question as, how do you interpret the title in the context of this song? Oh, yeah. Well, but either way. Either the way, way it works. plays off the album, I can totally see your interpretation. Like, okay, let's get down to business. Yeah, let's be real. <laughs> right, exactly. And so that's a really interesting interpretation. And it makes sense, especially given the fact that they lead off the album with that song. You know, yeah. It's, uh, and I, I like that move sort of rhetorically of just – it sets up what the album is going to be like, that it's going to be about sort of stripping pretenses. Well, uh, I, I don't think we have anything left to say about, honestly, now it's a pretty short track and we've discussed right. it for yeah. longer than it is, but, uh, <laughs> right, exactly. but that's great. Um, why don't we, we, we can discuss it note by note. If we, <laughs> why don't we go ahead and hear a little bit of the track number two, Gin and Platonic. second track off of how memory works anything you'd like to say about it well first of all i think that it's not necessarily one of my favorite songs on the album and a lot of that i think has to do with the lyrics they're a little harder to parse than some of the other songs for me at least on you know my first read through now i'd listened to the song multiple times but and I, i don't dislike the song i don't dislike any song on this album to be honest and it's hard to it's hard to dislike a specific song from an album that's this unified and conceptual mm-hmm. because if you take a piece out, you know, it's you, you lose something. So it's almost kind of a fallacy to, you know, criticize specific tracks. But obviously someone's going to enjoy one piece more than another. Well, I would like to point out that that one thing we we, we used the word deconstructing earlier. One thing Joan of Arc does is deconstruct songs a lot. And this is one of the Joan of Arc's albums that has verse, chorus, verse, and even a bridge. I mean, it has standard American pop music structure. Yeah. But not. It, it's not standard, but it definitely has some structure. Well, uh, did you would you find any meaning in this song, Isolated, or as a whole, or in the title? Well, you know, I mean, I was a little hindered by 
the first lyrics I found online had spelled hair With, as uh, a here. I know. Which I Googled and is an Indian ethnic group. And <laughs> so then I went down that track. And of course, that was very misleading. <laughs> right. And then, and then my second interpretation was like, oh, it's probably air because the next lyric is about suffocating, you know, being smothered or whatever. So then I found out it was hair, um, and that also makes sense. My interpretation of lyrics would kind of hinge around that specific line, which I don't have handy, but it's something about you know hair and then armor. Um, I, the the exact line for those wondering is oh I'll be checking my hair and my armor life sustaining suffocating hearts exploding from heat melting at the stake which is actually a reference to Joan of Arc the right, no, person I, I was going to mention the you know uh, being burned at the stake I mean thing you know obviously that's how she was martyred mm-hmm. um, that's interesting in itself because they get a little meta there but um, I interpretate interpretate interpret. Um, <laughs> I interpret tape tones. That's that's my term for it. Sorry. Oh, I thought you were just going to start beatboxing and like oh yeah yeah um, and scatting all over the right, place. Right, 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 right. Um, but anyway, so I interpret it as being more about emotional armor. Mm. Now I might just be going down a false path because if I read it through the lens of being about Joan of Arc, then possibly everything becomes a lot more literal. But I look at it as the consequences of stripping your emotional armor and sort of being, you know, opening yourself up to like pain, essentially, right? Um, sorry, can you read the lyric one more time? Yeah, actually, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to read all the lyrics to all the songs, but right. that is my least favorite part of the lyrics. So I'm just going to read for the audience the whole lyrics like they were written in the liner notes. Boys like me, boys like me, can't say no, can you? Can't say no, can you? Oh, I'll be checking my hair and my armor, life, sustaining, suffocating, hearts, exploding from heat, melting at the stake. Half embarrassed, half can't help it. Yeah, nothing is good enough, we wink. So what and so what? Charming sorries, I'm sure. Always looking, all can't be bothered, remarkably unmarketable, all talk me, can't do nothing, but boys like me. Interesting, and interpreting it as a song narrated by... Joan of Arc gives a very different meaning to it than if I interpret it as a song narrated by Tim Kinsella. Tim Kinsella, because the boys like me versus boys like me. You see what I'm saying? The if the emphasis is different, like your one is a comparison of like it's a male narrator saying, Oh, boys like me do this kind of thing. Right. The other is like boys like me. Yeah. Right? I didn't um, even think about it like that, but yeah, definitely. I, I only noticed that because of the way you I read it, read it. But yeah, that makes it. perfect sense, and is how right. And I don't think you know Joan of Arc was notorious for you know having a bunch of male admirers, but well, I, I've got a, a couple couple more notes about this. I do think part of this song is just kind of a feeling like a social pariah, right? And then like you know checking my hair, like trying to fit in but failing. Well, that's why I talked about emotional armor. Yeah, ex- um, exactly. That's why. What's and so the, you know, and then they're like, yes, there's melting at the stake, but there's uh, some reference to hearts in there. So it's sort of opening yourself up, right? Yeah. Um, well, and if you want to go with the theme, the the how memory works, the way I interpret it this time around, mm-hmm. I also think it could just be a reference to like going on tour and seeing the crowds and being like, oh, I mean, Captain Jazz was a, an emotional, hardcore, post-punk, emo, whatever kind of band. Like, I'm sure the crowds were overwhelmingly male at the time right and so i think he's just like 
part of him's like, well, I, I, I can't really communicate well with girls. I can't attract girls. But hey, look, boys like me. <laughs> you know, like right. I kind of feel like there's that kind of sentiment in it too. Right. But if you read, if you read the lyric as one grammatical unit, boys like me can't say no. Yeah, um, exactly. That, that changes the meaning. You know. And then you can, can you? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So you can read it as boys like me, and then I can't say no. Can you? Or you can read it as, you know, boys like me can't say no. So the, I, I like that sort of ambiguity. And I feel like that's one thing he excels at lyrically in a lot of ways. Oh, we should, we before we stop talking about it, actually, we should um, maybe discuss the title because... Oh, yeah, Gin and Platonic. You know, that ties into your interpretation, I think, because, yeah, it's about drinking, you know, uh, so that ties into being on tour. I think there's typically a lot of drinking done. Yeah. But then the platonic thing, you know, platonic relationships, so that also ties into your interpretation of, uh, you know, you know, being unable to attract women or whatever, you know, so uh, he's, he's getting in a lot of these platonic relationships well, and boys like me, but women don't. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I do feel like part of this is parallel with the song I Love a Woman Who Loves Me on a portable model of and that there's kind of this feeling like if, if you look at it really metaphorical and, and this is just something I've done in the moods and this is probably my last statement about this song is it feels like some of the lyrics are almost debating being an artist versus being an entertainer because right. he can't exactly figure which side he needs to fall on in a way. I don't mm -hmm. know if that makes sense reading back, but there's that line like remarkably unmarketable can't do nothing. And then like nothing is good enough. We wink like just like little subtle hints at like, well, this is not entertaining tons of people because this is art or I am entertaining tons of people and I'm not making the art. I, I, I there's just that part of it. There right. And me. there's a lot about, posturing too and playing cool you know obviously checking your hair but then that uh lyric towards the end and like that plays on the word all which i, I can't remember the, i can't remember all talk me yeah can't um, do nothing right yeah so like um yeah so there's this there's this idea of just you know uh social posturing of some kind so you know and again i think that ties into both our interpretations actually hmm. um all right well yeah let's 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 go ahead and move on track number three to have had two of. say that um to have had two of is probably my favorite on the album granted it's one of the most accessible so in a weird way i feel almost guilty for liking it the most <laughs> but there's just so much interesting stuff going on with the lyrics the guitar part's great um well i think it's it's the most classically beautiful song on this album without a doubt right and you can't deny how it's a pretty song no, and uh, the lyrics are just tremendously interesting to me because... Um, and so simple. They're very, very short and to the point. Right. It's a beautiful poem that if I was to receive it as a poetry submission, as a journal editor, mm. you know, which is something I do um, from time to time, but maybe I'll just plug that real quick. So <laughs> I read for New American Press and Mayday Magazine. Um, so I, I, I read contests at uh, New American press runs and mm. i read uh just for the journal 
for a Mayday, and Mayday usually puts out two issues a year. We're we vary from year to year. <laughs> right, right. There's no consistent like we have to put one out in May, we have to put one out in September or anything. It's like when that. you have the material, right? Exactly. So, and it just depends on you know submission quantity. It depends on scheduling. It depends on a lot of things. But what I was going to say is a lot of lyrics don't stand up well outside of the song. Right. Yeah, because they need the emotional vehicle of the music. But these do just because the way the two stanzas. I'm I'm omitting the the middle stanza because it literally is just John five one through four. Right. Um. I don't think it's even a stanza. I think it's just formatted weird. There. It's, right. It's, exactly. It's just an attribution. Right. In the music, two, <laughs> the two stanzas play off each other in such interesting ways. And I actually just found some more information out about it while we were taking our break. Mm. So I don't. Do you know if the if the, is this the literal verbatim quote? From, from the, the Bible. Bible? You know, of all these years, I could have cross-referenced it, but I never once have. I, I don't care, almost. Like, right. it's it's It sounds perfectly credited to a Bible. I mean, I feel like maybe I should have researched that for the show, but it sounds like it, it is, right? I mean... And, I, and I'm going to say it is because I just... I think it is, too. Googled Bethesda Bible, and I have a Wikipedia entry in front of me. Pool of Bethesda, and it's a pool that's mentioned in John. Yeah, so the Pool of Bethesda is a pool of water in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem on the path of Beth Zeta Valley. Um, mm. So anyway, Beth Zeta, I guess it's like Bethesda. It's, until 19th century, there's no evidence outside of John's gospel for the existence of this pool. Therefore, scholars argued that the gospel was written later, probably by some of the firsthand knowledge of the city of Jerusalem. That the pool, in quotes, had only a metaphorical rather than historical significance. In the 19th century, archaeologists discovered the remains of a pool fitting the description in John's Gospel. So, it all seems to be true. And what's interesting, of course, is that he then uses a second stanza to make the connection between that Bethesda and Bethesda, Maryland. And the... The statement he makes following that is not true to anyone's knowledge. <laughs> yeah, about... about the, the diners that are famed for waitresses so rude. <laughs> right, right. And he says, if I remember correctly. So maybe he's, you know, purposely remembering Unreliable incorrectly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, of course, that ties into how memory works. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, memory is notoriously unreliable. Right. Um, the number of times I've been incredibly confident about a memory yeah. and then had somebody be like um no that's not how it happened <laughs> yeah. and then somehow prove it to me oh yeah and yeah, that's really a disconcerting sensation but anyway that's a different uh, topic but um so bethesda maryland tying that to the biblical bethesda is really interesting of course it's it's funny too you know in a way because yeah like, it's, it's definitely there's definitely a humorous play on it Right, yeah, it's not laugh out loud funny per se, but it's the idea of going from the hands of an angel troubled the waters of the pool of Bethesda, rendering it curative, John 5, 1 through 4, to, if I remember correctly, it's in Bethesda, Maryland, <laughs> where the diners are famed for waitresses so rude. You know, just the juxtaposition yeah. of this heightened biblical language and then it's just sort of casual toss off of like kind of a mundane observation, really. Yeah. Um, and all, all those things that, that you're saying about it are definitely like feelings that I've had about this song for a long time. But unless unless I'm cutting you off, I'd like to say what occurred to me while listening to it under this these new ears that have 
you know, listening to it that for this you had that I just had added. But Jonathan if you had a corrective surgery, so he had his ears cut off in a tragic uh, uh, Joan of Arc accident. It's true. It's true. It was tragic. It, it was a martyrdom. But uh, if you take this in the context of this being like the reflection of a tour diary, mm-hmm. I don't think the, the Bethesda, Maryland and the Bible verse are literal, but I feel like somewhere along this tour, there was just some stop he made where like he, something in the water made him feel better. You know, like there was just like this brief moment where like, oh, it's okay. Everything, there's like a, a weight was lifted. And of course, it, the water was brought to him by rude waitresses or whatever. And right. that's, that's where it comes to. But somewhere along this tour, like something restored him. And this is like him marking that lyrically. And, you know, that could just be my own interpretation based on this entirely. But I feel like it kind of goes with that theme. But but I don't think this song has to go with any theme, too, because it does. It's just a very simple statement, which, I mean, has a lot of layers. So I made a note about the other song that references pools, and I can't. I believe it's Pale Orange, uh, the neighbor or kid drowned in the neighbor's in-ground pool. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's exactly, um, that's exactly where the reference is, uh, you know, pops up again. And I have to think, yeah, that while he was on tour, I mean, it, it may be a glass of water brought to him by a waitress, but it could just be, you know, a swimming pool at a party or something like that. You know, just um, the waters of this were curative. You know, he just, yeah. um, for whatever reason, he felt yeah. restored. Right, exactly. And so we can interpret it as a literal like swimming pool or, a, you know, it can be a lake or a pond or, uh, you know, it really can be anything. But I think, yeah, I think that um, there's definitely some experience he had on tour that was is referenced more than once on this album, you know, so uh, and uh, yeah, the first references in this song. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the only other things to talk about would be how beautiful the music is like right yeah the, the, the cello i love i really like when a song becomes something else but yeah it, this song if, if you don't mind me cutting you off this song delivers the lyrics and the words of its song rather early on and then just builds into this other thing afterwards right and the cello is you know beautifully played and it, it, it enters actually on a dissonant note mm. Like it's it's jarring at first and then slowly becomes beautiful. Mm. And then the guitar actually drops off and the cello basically closes the song. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. I think there's some other instrumentation. I I think there's some background noise too. There's like a, there's something that comes in at the very end, like a xylophone or something, but it's basically becomes a cello song, Mm -hmm. you know, after the lyrics drop out. Um, That was, that was interesting and sort of really appealing. Um, I do have a thought about the wordplay of the title, um, just real quick. Um, Should we try to explain that to the listener in case they're not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said to uh, to have had two of, right? But that was to sort of make it clear to the listener. Mm-hmm. But it's two of, two apostrophe, T-O apostrophe V-E. So it's a contraction which you probably will never see anywhere else in print. Right. Like pro- it may be the first time it's ever been used. I mean, I can't vouch for that. There's been a lot of things written in English. Yeah. But, so that's, you know, it's funny in itself. I'll also say that this might be the only album that has two songs which end in the preposition of. <laughs> a partyable model of and two have had two of. Yeah, that is, um, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't notice that either, but yeah. Yeah, I was just I was just going through the album looking for little connections between songs, and that's just something that popped out to me. And of course, that song and this song are probably the 
quietest and most accessible songs on the album. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think uh, I think we're good with. Yeah, this one, I, I don't have I don't have any other notes on that. Now, what we're going to come up to is track number four, and we're going to go ahead and listen to a little bit of "This Life Cumulative." put this in my top three tracks on this album i i love this song i mean i do like screamier music and he definitely screams more on this song but i i just there's so many things about this song that i love it's it's catchy but there's like the weird bird chirp and the mechanical whirring going on at all the same time so before i keep hogging it and saying all the things i love about this song what, what kind of things did you want to say about it i know i just said the last song was probably my favorite but this one might be my favorite as well. <laughs> it's okay, put it this way. Yeah, like you said, top three. This is definitely in that top three for me as well. Like it's uh, catchy to the extent that Joan of Arc is willing to be catchy. And it has some of my favorite lyrics of this album. Right, yeah. It's just super interesting on a lot of levels. For the listener, at least the way my lyrics are formatted is more like a prose poem it's mm-hmm. just all run together with the lines just as long as you know not as long as possible but pretty long yeah they're the not they're not broken up by like musical phrases you know so no. um and and a lot of the a lot of the way his lyrics are formatted is not related to how he actually says it sometimes like there'll be a stanza or sorry a line break that doesn't actually relate to when his pause is yeah when singing. I, I think it's intent i mean right. it's definitely intentional there's no right yeah so i mean he's treating them more like poems you put a line break in a poem but that doesn't mean you read it that way because to read it that way would often be awkward you put the line break there for an additional effect yeah it's the written art of the poem right 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 exactly the uh you know um i think ezra pound said something about you know the way a poem looks on the page is as important as the way it sounds. If that makes perfect sense. And well, I don't know, necessarily know that it is as important, but it's certainly a key element. For reading, it does. I don't, I don't, for reading aloud, I don't think it does. But if you're like by yourself reading poetry, I think it is, it is important because you completely understand the way the artist meant it when you see it written on the page like that. Right. And, and you can use spacing to create breathing room for lines. You can use line breaks to create dramatic effects that you wouldn't otherwise get just from the line itself or you can create wordplay by um Mm -hmm. you know uh just by breaking something in an interesting place but anyway uh i feel like you have more to say on the lyrics i have tons to say about this song did any particular meaning that before i will talk about this song probably longer than a lot of songs on here but any particular meaning you saw in the title or the song as a whole that you'd like to bring up before i I'd, I'd say things I see. Yeah, I mean, okay, there's the obvious things about Fiona Apple. Yeah, right. Um, Poor I, Fiona. <laughs> I mean, clearly that last part is about Fiona Apple. I mean, maybe we should just read that last part. Um, Be my guest. Because, again, you know, a lot of our listeners are not going to have, you know, read the lyrics online, and I don't, frankly, blame them, you know Yeah, no, of course. We're here to discuss. Right, exactly. We, you know, and we hope that this podcast is informative, you know. Um, so I'll start reading it. At least this is the way it's printed in mine. Um, And dear Lord, for 
Poor Fiona, swore on some music award she'd wish she'd never been born, in a language of awkward size, and you. You're always using cooing. Okay, so it departs from Fiona there, maybe, possibly, depending on your interpretation. Yeah. Or it's, or it's suddenly transitioning to directly addressing Fiona, depending on how you want to interpret it. So, okay, there's a lot of cool things going on there. Um, okay, if we just look at internal rhyme... And dear Lord, for poor Fiona, swore on some music awards that she wished she'd never been born. Yeah. So you have like five rhyming words there. Yeah, um, it's really clever in a weird way. Right. And then you can actually, if you wanted to, you can interpret the whole song to be about Fiona Apple. I, I don't I've, necessarily do that. I've but, seen people online interpret it as Fiona Apple, but I don't see that. But I understand why you would. You've got such a pretty voice. But you got to get so fucked up to sing. Now I don't. I mean, I'm a I'm a big Fiona Apple fan. I actually, have all her albums. But I knew that about you. Um, you know, <laughs> but and, the listener did not. Right, but she. I don't necessarily think she has a huge, huge history of like drug use. I mean, she was arrested for having some marijuana in Texas. But come on, like you know, everybody. But he might everybody's just, been there. <laughs> he might just be meaning drunk though, because right, 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 or or just fucked up emotionally in some way, you know. Um, but but then the stuff in the middle it becomes difficult to put that in the context of Fiona Apple. Now there's two other women referenced. Um, yes. Uh, this will, if you don't mind, I will go ahead and say, this is one of the meanings I take from this song. I feel like it's about modern feminism through an obscured young male perspective. Does this, does that make sense to you? Like, I mean, he's obviously in support of feminism, but it's the only way he can understand it being a male in in a youth culture as a male. Because there's a line, and it's beautiful, and I love it. It's I will go ahead and, and cue this up, but it's, You say it's the Vierda Pierce in me versus the bell hooks in me. Pointless communication, trapped in grammar and calendars. All this white bread makes me wonder. But, like, bell hooks is a feminist writer, but right, it's still, right. like, such a... The Pierce and the hooks play off their... I think they're... Veda Pierce is a feminist writer as well. Right. Well, I'm 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 googling Verda Pierce, and I'm not getting a lot of helpful right. Hits. But Bell Hooks is definitely, in fact, one of my favorite tumblers that I've ever seen. Is called Saved by the Bell Hooks. Right. And it yeah. takes pictures of from stills from the show Saved by the Bell. Right. And puts up Bell Hook quotes under them, and it's brilliant. But yeah, that's that's part of why I think this song is about modern feminism, but obscured through a young male view. And I think that kind of makes sense because of that whole – this is one other thing I'd like to point out. I think this song I, – I could be wrong. There could be certainly be ones that were never released. But I think this song starts what a lot of people consider the Kinsella list because there's that part really early in the song where you're boning, moaning, yeah, you're dumb teen, bum teen, cum teen, run teen, plum teen, bump teen, dump teen, run teen. Like, teen. Yeah. It's old. Yeah. It's, it, that's like the start of the Kinsella list in my eyes. But yeah, and there's a lot of wordplay throughout this whole song. Like, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if, um, if somebody knows who Verda Pierce is and wants to inform us. You know, hopefully we don't look too ignorant, um, but, uh, you know, obviously it's not a call-in show, so... But yeah, we do get... have a, an email address you can find on the website or, or at, at the end of this show, and you'll be an email address to write into us. But but yeah, this, this, uh, this, uh, this also, you know, the last song had the thing about the Bible in reference to John. The song before it had the reference to Joan of Arc. 
this song has a reference to feminist writers and and a feminist musician. I think it continues that whole referential theme too. You know, where where lots of these songs, our minds work in references. So right, and how- there's a lot of uh, references to American cultural figures. I mean, obviously you have the song "God Bless America," but um, then you have you know in that song you have Houdini. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's one other reference in that song, but then here you have uh, Bell Hooks, who I believe is American. Um, yeah, I'm, and I'm pretty sure. And uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a theory head, so I don't know a lot about Bell Hooks. I do know that her name is actually lowercase, unlike how it's printed here. Hmm. But um, so she has that kind of uh, E. Cummings kind of like messing with syntax thing going on, um, and well, antagonizing a... people's views of language. <laughs> <You're> right, <laughs> and I think that's interesting because that plays off of um, his weird dumb teen, bum teen, cum teen thing. Uh, run teen, like, is obviously playing with language, but then mm. it goes on from there. Pointless communication, which I say is pointless, not pointless, because yeah. I know that if we say it, you know, we slur our speech a little bit. Yeah, um, and then, it is definitely pointless communication. But when right. heard, it it blurs the line, and I right. think that's part of of the the choice. Trapped in grammar and calendars, right? So, like, um, clearly, some of this song is about language, you know. And it starts with you've got a pretty voice, and then it ends with you're always using cooing. So, there's something going on there with not just voice as a singing voice, but as expression and as language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a sort of, I, I do buy your interpretation though, about um, it being a song about contemporary feminism. But through a male perspective. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And maybe we just assume the male perspective because we know it's a male singing it. It's hard to differentiate. Yeah, I'm, I think I think on songs where he has a female perspective, he makes it clear he's using a female perspective. Right, 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 right. Um, um, but not always. You know, who are we to say it completely? Let's let's talk a little bit about the sounds of this song. It starts off with like a bird chirping noise, which I think would annoy enough people right off. But I love it because it, it's just this weird bird chirping, and then it's like this very computer like MIDI little roll and then it just full kicks into the song you know right. which it, it kind of is the thing where it's there's these weird sparse things but they're very compact in in this album as compared to the first and you know that's one of the things i love i love that repeating little mechanical or whatever and i love we were, we were talking about it the breakdown uh there, there's like these tape splice drums and this is where people who have a problem who enjoy traditional drums as rhythm as timekeepers Probably get a little frustrated with it, but I personally like it where there's obviously these really great thought out drum lines, but then the tape is spliced together in weird ways to like reverse parts and cut in and fade in and fade out while other stuff is going on. I mean, do you have anything to add about that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it didn't bother me at all. Um, I mean, because it felt so intentional. It didn't feel like a drummer playing out a rhythm. I mean, it's clearly edited to make it jarring yeah you know? and it's but it's not so jarring that like it takes you out of the mood it's not like i don't feel like there's any kind of overkill yeah anyway yeah um if, if you don't have anything else to add i think we're probably ready to move on to the next track track number five would be a pale orange Yeah, 
so this is a, a little bit of a pale orange. It's it's probably the most sparse and the most droney song on this whole album, I would argue. You, do you have any first off thoughts? Yeah, I guess what's interesting to me is about is how this sort of ties into some of the themes, you know, and images we've talked about already. Um, again, this is the second song to reference pools, um, but in a very different way, you know, little kid drowned in neighbor's backyard in ground pool. Um, and then it goes to this lake at stock. So obviously lake and pool are playing off each other here. And then you have fish have eyes on their sides. Um, so you've got a lot of like water imagery, a lot of like, you know, lake and pool stuff. And I don't know what exactly is going on in this album with all those references. I don't have some huge overarching theory, but it's just one of those things that gives something a cohesive feel. If you can have various sounds that are repeated throughout an album, various um, images that are repeated throughout an album, it suddenly feels like an album. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I, I'll, I kind of have reason that I believe some of those images, especially in this one, are there. But before we get into that, I'd like to just go ahead and point out, and you know, we, we can talk in any order, it doesn't matter, but I would like to point out that this, like, to have had two of, has a part where there's lyrics, and then almost becomes a completely different song. And the first part is much shorter than the second part. And the second part has this really industrial feel to it. I mean, did you feel did you feel the industrial aspects of it? Oh, absolutely. I love that that guitar that enters. And it's almost like way more traditionally like rock. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. um, the first part of the song is actually soft. It's, it's a, right. still a little jarring, but it's very soft. Right. And then the last line gets delivered and that guitar, that very industrial guitar. Right, right. I was going to say, yes, it's a guitar, but it has this quality that's just just the way that the distortion is done does create that sort of industrial feel like you were saying. Yeah. Well, I have no real reason to think know why this song is called A Pale Orange. But I will say that, especially in relation to the other album and stuff, but I think this album's about suburban life. And knowing that Tim Kinsella grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago, I'm obviously the lake. It's probably the very lake that you and I can look out the window right now and see. But it may not be. But it is, it's very, it's very much about like suburban life. It's how we talk and move. We walk in place. You know, and then the little kid drowned. It's like the hushed parts of the weird, like weird, dark things you find out about suburban life. But in another way, the the way that this also ties into a portable model of is, and there's a couple places, Kinsella is obviously like an Italian name. There's a, a couple places in both albums where he references Rome or Roman gods or places in Italy. And Janus is the Roman god of beginnings and transitions. Who have who has two heads? Hence the last last lyric in the song, and Janice has his heads. So in a way, I, I do feel like that's what makes me think this song is a more personal song because he's like, oh, here's the suburb that I grew up in and my my Roman heritage, you, you know. So I, that's kind of where I feel like he's coming from with that line. And this song is just very much about suburban life. So if we're on like he's looking back at a tour, this is like memories of home or when he came home and just be like, well, look at this great big world and what what's here in that kind of aspect. And does that make sense to you? Right. And of course, Janice is also, you know, a metaphor for hypocrisy, right? Um, or having a hidden side. Or um, two-faced. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. guess. Yeah, that's that's the most blunt way to put it. That's where the expression two-faced you know, sort of comes from. Yeah. Um, and 
Yeah, so it's interesting to think about in the context of what you were saying about uh, suburban life. You know, and suburban life is typically full of conformity and full of um, people trying to fit into a mold. But this song sort of shows the dark side of it by, you know, talking about a drowned kid. And it's interesting, this lake is stocked. I wonder what it means by that. Coming right off the kid drowning, it's hard to not think about it as, you know, dead bodies and things like that. And then these odds are stacked, which, you know, the implied part is against us, right? Yeah. Or against whoever, because that's typically how the phrase goes. Yeah. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it's the idea that it's just hard to move forward in life. I don't, I don't know. Um, anyway, so I, I, that thought kind of went nowhere, but, but you know, it, it feels very suburban dredge. Right, exactly. And that's kind of why the second half of it's got that industrial feel to it. But right. I think I think we're ready to move on. I think let's talk about the sixth track of the album. We're going to talk about White Out. We're going to listen to a little bit of White Out. jarring of a song in general i think than the last one or some of the other ones it's a very clever song (laughs) yeah for me it's you know it's one of the highlights on the album uh you know and again maybe i'm just drawn towards the more sort of conventional songs possibly i mean this doesn't follow verse chorus verse at all though no it doesn't but like in terms of how pleasant it is to listen to Mm -hmm. versus you know some of the other sort of more noisy cacophonous kind of uh I just wanted to say that word. Um, <laughs> right. Cacophonous kind of songs, you know, it's uh and even even the lyrics are a little more straightforward and easy to read some meaning into. Um Well, speaking of the lyrics, I don't know, uh, this is just one of my notes. I don't know if you noticed. This is the second song in a row that in the very first line, the phrase how we appears. I didn't notice, but I noticed a lot of connections between this song and the previous Yeah, song. I feel like they're two sides of the same coin for this. Right, right, right. Okay, so one thing, of course, is a pale orange, white out, mm. right? So there's a color motif. Another thing is um, the death or drowning thing. So time to come to can be sort of interpreted in that lens. Uh, but then how many ways, at least this is how it's written here, how many ways is there to count to know if someone's dead? Yeah. Right, so it's, uh, you know, again, like when, you know, Checking an EMT a person <laughs> yeah, comes onto the scene, they check the pulse, um, like I guess I mean it's a rhetorical question. How many like, ways are there to find? Death? How often? How many times do we have to prove that this is death? Like, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I, I I I tend to think it's actually referencing maybe the same drowning or something like that. Um, how we work long day afternoons, morning. He's, and morning is written as in right celebrating, not celebrating. How how do you describe that kind of morning? Yeah, like, yeah. Like you do at a funeral. Right, yeah, yeah. Being in a state of mourning, right? Wearing black. Yeah. Um, you know, you have the black wristband thing that some people wear yeah. for like a month, whatever. Um, anyway, you get the point. Obviously, it's playing off day, afternoon, morning. So it's a pun, mm-hmm. but. Um, long day, afternoon, morning. Right. So. Because um, long day appears one word in the lyrics. Right, right, right. And obviously, you know, again, that's intentional too. I think he knows that. 
Long Day is Not One War. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a published novelist. He like, definitely knows Long Day is Not right. One um, Others, you know, there's uh, other things that come up in other songs, like the there's fruit flies on the toothbrush and teeth in the sink. So I think the next song, or maybe it's the song after that, references teeth. And mm. then there's something about a flypaper smile. Yeah, that's the next so, song. Mm-hmm. Again, that's that's a motif that I appreciate that he like finds ways to connect the lyrics of one song to the lyrics of the next song, which really give it a sort of flow. Oh, yeah, definitely. I guess, yeah, we should talk about... Um, so there's one lyric here. Which is continuing the referential theme, right? Right, right. In the room, the women come and go talking of Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, that's super clever, and I love it, <laughs> because, of course, it's T.S. Eliot from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and the original line is, in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, right? Um, so, But the Leonardo works, right, but yeah. then he adds the DiCaprio. Right, like. still, it still rhymes, and it's got the Italian thing yeah. um, to come back to the last song. Yeah, definitely. The virgin birth thing, of course, ties into the Italian uh theme because it's catholicism yeah um, exactly you know typically yeah yeah, yeah that's something because more obsessed with the with virgin the virgin mary, mary. exactly yeah. that's actually a note i have too it kind mm-hmm. of ties into that theme and yeah and it references t.s Eliot, and i think i think tim kinsella isn't is that definitely as a poet is influenced by t.s Eliot because t.s Eliot does a lot of really intentional mm-hmm. spacings and stuff like like his lyrics are like they're very much like oh i wrote this a specific way so i feel like there's definitely there's it's an homage to t.s Eliot. well using it for something different and just as valuable. Well, what do you think about the way that maybe this song's themes could possibly connect to that poem? So I don't know how familiar with that poem you are. I'm not that familiar with that poem. I've re- I've read it, but I haven't read it more than once, and it's been a while. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm resisting the urge, too. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, I think even the first, the first lyric here, how we work long day, afternoons, morning, is uh is is referential to that poem as well yeah um, if you there's a lot of stuff about time um and yeah and, and well, that time might... time to come time to come too is is very referential to it as well um if if you were to read the poem you would see sort of a lot of those similarities now thematically i'm wondering about the similarities so the poem is basically you know the first person narration of presumably j alfred Prufrock. Mm-hmm. um and it's basically about his sense of getting older and time having escaped him and not taken full advantage of certain opportunities and not having seized, yeah, I guess seized the day, you know. Well, I feel like um, that that ties in with this. I feel like feeling trapped in suburb as a young man, suburbia as a young right. man, I feel like that kind of is a similar kind of thing. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little different because – in J. Alfred Prufrock's case, you get the sensation that he's probably in his 50s or, you know. Right. Like, you know, well, he's a, been there the whole time is where this is a more youthful look Right, at right, it. right. Yeah. So, like, you know, I mean, because there's uh, – it mentions the bald spot in his hair. You know, and again, the, the poem sort of – I think the final stanza, you know, ends with a sort of there will be time. There will be time. You know, he repeats there will be time to do these things. He's trying to reassure himself, yeah. right, that he hasn't run out of time. So it's almost the opposite here. Like, right. well, how many ways is there to count to know when right. time is out? Right, exactly. <laughs> but but uh, I'm just sort of thinking of, um, you know, time to come clean, time to come to, you know, how that plays off. There will be time, right? Yeah. I, I just see a lot of 
a lot of that poem in there besides the obvious reference. Yeah, yeah. I that's. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. That's perfect for this discussion. Uh, I think. Is there anything else you really wanted to say about Whiteout? It's it's pretty straightforward, honestly. Yeah. No. I mean, besides uh, the lyrical analysis we've done, it's like a. It's a more. If I could give like a song, it would be representative of like what is. Joan of Arc sound like what is Tim Kinsella's or more like what is Tim Kinsella's sort of instrumentation typically uh-huh. sound like I mean obviously he's got other musicians but I imagine him being the mastermind behind a lot of projects uh-huh. he kind of comes in with like yeah it's kind of like this here's the chords <laughs> yeah and then somebody some adds something you yeah, know? yeah but like they flourish it right exactly so um I, I feel like if I was going to play a representative song, this might be one of them. I'm interrupting this podcast just to remind everyone that this episode of the JOA cast has been brought to you by The Doors You Mark Are Your Own. Now, The Doors You Mark Are Your Own is the first novel in the Joshua City trilogy. It's a post-apocalyptic literary epic that blends elements of Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and Golden Age Hollywood. It's sweeping in scope and often postmodern in form. And I can tell you myself, it's an excellent read. You can get it from online retailers like Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. You can get it directly from the publisher at Curbside Splendor, and it's in hundreds of bookstores nationwide. You know, even if it wasn't our sponsor for this episode, I would highly recommend this book to all my family and friends. In fact, I already have. So if you're in the market for a good book, check out The Doors You Mark Are Your Own, available on online retailers or hopefully a bookstore near you. I'd also like to take a moment to remind our listeners about the Abandoned Mascot Network, which has this very podcast that you're listening to. Please stay tuned to our SoundCloud page at Abandoned Mascot Prod for more information as we hope to bring you more podcasts like this and some podcasts that are completely different than this. And as we grow, we hope to expand beyond podcasting, but we always hope to be bringing quality content to our listener. So thanks for listening, and please check out our other podcasts. And again, stay tuned at our SoundCloud at Abandoned Mascot Prod for more information. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and move on to the next track. So open, semicolon, hooray. Okay, well, I, I gotta be honest, this is probably one of my least favorite songs on this album. I'm glad you said that because it's also one of my least favorites, and I didn't know if I was wrong to feel that way. Not that you can be wrong about an opinion, but if it's just like sort of me being ill-informed, having listened to it just a few times, because... I'm getting a lot of these lyrics from, uh, you know, songmeanings.com. Hopefully we don't have to pay them for mentioning that. I don't think so. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so, like, uh, you know, there's some of the songs have no comments. This one has two, which is not is not as many as some. But you know, one of the comments is, there's no telling how many times I've sat in my lawn chair, staring into the sky, stoned out of my gourd, listening to this song. Her flypaper eyes, such great imagery that only Tim Kinsella himself could pull off. So good comment. Um, but honestly, I don't feel like I don't feel like that line is classic Kinsella at all. Like there's certain lines that you hear where you're like, that's a 
that's something only Tim Kinsella could do, but I don't feel like that's one of them. Right. I mean, I guess... I think the line we were just discussing off mic is the one, if you would like to, you point it out. Right. So, okay. So, you know, earlier in the song, it mentions her flypaper eyes. Then later, it's let's sit and stare at each other, repeated a bunch of times, and then tell these paper eyes tear. So what's interesting, of course, is that paper eyes is obviously referencing the flypaper eyes, but it's these. It's not her. It's both of ours. Both both of ours, right? Um, And tear, of course, is spelled the same as tear, when, you know, your eyes, you know, can tear if you're crying, right? So, yeah. Um, and I think the song, uh, going to my to my tour theme and, and mm-hmm. like, falling in love right before leaving for tour and dealing right. with that, this song comes to it because I think this song, this song is a love song, but I think it's, like, it's an end of love, love song. Does that make sense? Like, they're just waiting for their paper eyes to tear. They're waiting for right. the, the thing that just... And I think this song is partially about the thing i think you know very early in the in the song the line is posturing it's all in the hips gone for good again in rome and dallas i think whatever's going on in this song whether it's she came to meet him on tour if if we're just assuming this is a tour narrative either she came and meet, met him on tour and things weren't going wrong or, or he was just so wasted but the rome is again significant of his heritage where he's from and dallas is where he was in this moment. Right, right, right. But it's but it's gone from the, from the beginning of time till now. It's just all gone. Right. And then the in Rome of course can be interpreted as like when in Rome do what the Romans do. Yeah. Thing. Um but and same with when in Dallas get drunk and have stunken uh Oh yeah, we should talk about that. I love stunken drunk drunts chumbling stutter. So of course it's drunken stunts stumbling chatter well here's Um, my note about that the next song has something that's very much like that but it's way more cohesive like this one is like a drunk mix-up as where in the next song i mean it's deliberately a drunk mix-up in this song but in the next song it's a way more cohesive statement yeah and i have a lot to say about actually that particular lyric in the next song and how it plays off this Mm -hmm. um but yeah, obviously there's a lot about drunkenness, drug use in this song. I mean, burping in the corner while we dance, he's burping because he's drunk, right? That, that thick-eyed high. Yeah, um, yeah. And then this thick high. So, I mean, obviously he's that, that might be just drunkenness. It might be drug use in addition to drunkenness. And there's some other things going on. Like, I should say that the lyric is actually, hey, her, her, hey, hey, flypaper eyes is it hey her flypaper eyes i think it's hey her flypaper eyes right that's how i heard it so i read it that way this thick high can't stick right can't so it can't stick to can't stick to the flypaper right yeah um so it's about trying to maintain a connection right and the 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 image of flypaper eyes to me is eyes that sort of like suck you in you get stuck on them right it's like that that sort of I'm stuck on you kind of phrasing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, um, exactly. So, and that's like, let's sit and stare at each other, you know, mm-hmm. until we can sever the connection, until mm-hmm. these paper eyes tear. Yeah, or tear. Right, exactly. <laughs> Right, yeah. Well, well you, because tearing them apart would be sad, you know, so of course. I would, anyway. I would like to point out on one of the Tim Kinsella solo albums, uh, under the name Tim Kinsella's, he does a solo acoustic version of this song. I still don't think it's the strongest song. But I, I don't think it's a bad song, and I think it has an important place within the context of the album. But I think it's something about 
it's not the lyrics that turn me off from it. It's it's something about the music. It's just too static. Like it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. It's almost it's just, just white noise at, at times. Yeah, it's just kind of like like noodling. It doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. And like um, noodling makes it sound like he's just like fucking like doing guitar licks or whatever. But that's obviously it's not, I, you know I don't think Kim Sill has ever done like a fucking like. Uh, There's a Joan of Arc album we'll get to where Victor Villarreal's the guitar player and right. he's the guitar player of Captain Jazz and the Owls. Right, he does some guitar licks <laughs> okay, okay right yeah, but anyways yeah i think i think that's all we really need to say about so open hooray let's go ahead and move on to track number eight which is a name say this is also one of my highlights for this album i think lyrically this is one of my favorite songs on the album just so much there's just so much about the song not not as much to say but just to experience hearing it your thoughts on the meaning or, or on the song in general interesting so i like the lyrics not one of the standout tracks for me in terms of just the album as a whole mm-hmm. i mean there's definitely a lot to say about the lyrics um i think we touched on it in the last song the uh mumble stutter stumble mutter so Um, deliberate such a deliberate beautiful right yeah just i mean that's not only clever just sort of sonically beautiful um you know plays off the last song and just beautiful ways um i don't know yeah there's nothing really that i can add to that about that lyric Um, yeah it's it's a a simple beauty kind of thing well i kind of We'll talk about what this song is about. I, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you what I think it's about. I think it's about the futility of art. And in general, like, and, you know, if this is about it being on tour, it's about being frustrated with the futility of art. If this is about looking back on your tour, at this point, if if the narrator of the song is the writer of the song, then looking back on this tour was a completely different band he was touring with. That's why it's like embarrassing histories. It's also, so what now? Sing a rocker? You know, because Captain Jazz is way more of a rock band than Joan of Arc is. But yeah, it's like this moment of defeat being like, what do, what can music do? And I think there's uh, some stuff about communication in general, not just art. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I talked about that at the beginning of the podcast here, um, that I see failure to communicate. It's shapes on paper, waves in space. Right, right. Name it, can't talk. Can't talk is in quotes there. I should even say it should, I should even say it should most probably be instrumental. So again, that's implying a sort of lack of ability to communicate. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always eavesdropping on these awkward silences. Now, instrumental has a, a double meaning there, of course, because something could be instrumental in terms of, you know, musically, you have no lyrics, right. but it can also be instrumental in terms of it's necessary to my project or whatever. You know, right? as, as many times as I've heard this song, I never thought about it that way i only thought about him just being sarcastic being like this song called can't talk that's going to change the world it's not going to have any lyrics like that's the only way i ever right, saw that right. but let me you brought up the point that very last line that i'm always eavesdropping on these awkward silences uh, you that was a very good point about it being about inability to communicate i also kind of see it in a way like that you know the expression it's what you don't say 
And I, I right. feel like he's kind of like, it's, I'm hearing these moments where nothing's being said and everything's being said by these moments. Right. And I wonder if like what those awkward silences are, if it's just like in his like everyday social life or if it's like even on stage, right. You know, between songs, between songs, um, it could be in a context of a relationship too. just being like, there's these moments where our relationship just has these, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there it, it's, it's very open to interpretation that way. Um, another interesting thing, of course, is that this song shapes mentions shapes on paper. You had flypaper in the last song, and of course, the song before that, you have flies. So I just feel like he just playing out certain uh, linguistic threads, and that sort of brings me to my next little point about language and it being a prominent thing on this album. You know, again, so it's not just difficulty in communicating. There's a real theme that I didn't even, you know, mention up front of language. I think that anyone who's as deliberate an artist and who's as interested in postmodernism and uh, antagonizing forms as he is, is going to be interested in what language as a medium does and how it functions and talking explicitly about how it functions. So the song is called A Name. Right. Mm. I don't know if that's like, you know, I mean, it's obviously in reference to him coming up with a song name. Name it can't talk. You know what a song it will be and know what a difference it will make. Right. And I love how and just to, sorry to interrupt, please keep your train of thought. But I love in the background where those lines are happening. There's like there will always be anger. We'll always have anger. <laughs> I don't know. It's just kind of funny contrast to the, the lines. But that's, again, why I think it's about Captain Jazz a little bit. But right. anyways. Well, is there a song called Can't Talk? No. Okay, so it's just a hypothetical song mm -hmm. that will basically save his band or, you know... Or his, them... his experience of the world or whatever. Right, yeah, yeah, give him what he always wanted in some way, right? You know, and again, I, I'm actually coming up with new interpretations as we discuss it because I had not read that lyric as coherently, you know, while I was listening to it as I am now and understanding new meanings, but... Mm -hmm. I, I have to think with all his referential shit um, that a name can be a reference to Shakespeare. Like, what's in a name? Right? I, yeah, I think I think so, too. I think you're right about that. I think it continues that the theme of referentialism, which is part right. of how memory works. <laughs> right, yeah. And then also just the, the, the theme of language, right? Uh, what's in a name? You know, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, right? Mm. Like, there's an arbitrariness to naming something. Yeah, um, that it's just a pure like linguistic function. Mm -hmm. We could call a chair, you know, a book, and if everybody understood, and everybody was willing to switch over to calling chairs books, well, right? and, it, and calling books chairs, whatever, um, we would eventually, within a generation, get used to it, and it wouldn't be a problem. Well, and it ties back, you know, I mean. I consider myself somewhat of a writer. You're obviously yeah. more of a writer than I am, but one of my biggest obviously. <laughs> but one of my biggest problems is I feel like grammar can be archaic. And it goes back to the line right. this life cumulative where he's like all the, trapped in grammar and calendars. And it's just like these human constructs that, well, what exactly do they mean? And I and I think that that goes along with what you're saying about that is it's it's just well this is a human construct in all in all reality it's not real. You know. And he pushes the limits of grammar, you know. I mean, there's a verse in here which provided again that i'm getting accurate lyrics says oh oh those finicky 
Zinfandels. Which is, is that, it's Z apostrophe right. infidels. Right, so, so it's playing it's a, off the wine, like white Zinfandel. Yeah, it's playing the off infidel. the wine and also religious infidels. And there's another line in this song, and this will go with what you're saying. I think it skips the instru- instrumental track, but the line in the song is, gosh, golly, God again. He never says God in this song. Right, right. But he mentions the infidels earlier, but the, one of the last lines is, gosh, golly, God again. Right, and he invents all kinds of words like persnicketying. Yeah. <laughs> persnicketying eaches whatever and everything. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just he's really, I think, pushing the limits of what language can do and be intelligible. Yeah, exactly. So I think that the, 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 the theme of communication or lack thereof is very appropriate because he's really pushing the envelope in terms of what can be understood. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think some people are not willing to go there, which is part of their problem with Joan of Arc. Like, yeah. They're, just, they're not willing to. Willing sounds like condescending. Yeah. Like, it's, maybe it's just not for them. Yeah. Right? It's not it's for not, them. It's not a, it's not a, like, they just don't try. It's just. What, it's not saying that they're, like, not intelligent well, enough to do it. Oh, no. Yeah. Can, there's perf- they can be perfectly intelligent. Just something about their brain doesn't enjoy the process of trying to, un- to right. understand it that kind of boundary but i think we should go ahead and move on to the the second instrumental track of the album and the ninth track altogether. good old osmosis doesn't work If we're understanding correctly, the sheer point of, of this beautiful instrumental track is Osmosis Doesn't Work. <laughs> right, and that's the title of the song. And again, I, I'm saying again, this was an off, you know, off the recording conversation. I was going to say off the record, but, uh, you know, off the recording, I think is more appropriate yeah. here. I was challenging Jonathan to name me a time that Osmosis has actually worked. And it doesn't. Osmosis no. doesn't work. Never works. Never works. Now, Never had a job on the dole, <laughs> sitting on the couch all day. Yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, you know, sort of acting like Donnie in a Just Shoot Me. Yeah, yeah, Donnie in Just Shoot Me. Um, <laughs> we'll get there in a different show. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, but you know, for, for our listeners who enjoy sort of intertextuality, they might enjoy the reference to this other podcast. To P is for podcast, right here on Abandoned Mascot Productions Network. Right. So it's it's it's, it's you know it's a very Tim Kinsella like thing of me to do, <laughs> like reference some other thing that people don't know about. It's meta. Um, yeah, I don't think we need to talk too much about Osmosis doesn't work. There's definitely like I'm pretty sure the guitar was recorded and then tracked backwards. Oh, absolutely. I was going to bring that up. In fact, I'm going to say it's, I'm positive that that's what was done because yeah. I've done backward tracks in the studio and that uh, little hesitation yeah. and then release thing is exactly what you get when you do, you know, when you track something backwards. Yeah. So I, I really just have a couple thoughts about it. They're super quick. Yeah, me too. You okay, go ahead. So the backwards track thing is awesome. I always like it when it happens. Uh, this In this particular instant, instance... Um, it reminds me of um, a Radiohead song, Like Spinning Plates, which is on Amnesiac, mm-hmm. which, um, again, oh, maybe listeners have heard it, probably, because a lot of people listen to Radiohead. Yeah. And even if you hadn't, uh, check this song out and check that one out and do a little comparison. 
uh, that one actually has lyrics, mm-hmm. and it led me down an interesting path of researching that song and how they <laughs> did it. Right. So what happened was when they were recording that particular album, which is actually more like B-sides and stuff, they had recorded a song called I Will, which ended up on Hail to the Thief, but Tom York didn't like it, so his solution in the studio was just, let's reverse it, see how it sounds. He's like, oh, this is a lot better. I love this melody. So he essentially taught himself the lyrics backwards, <laughs> then reversed it again so that they sounded forward. So it's like a David Lynch project. <laughs> right, exactly. So, well, but that's, but it's, 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 it's kind of a Joan of Arc project in terms of like complexity. Of yeah, like what they're oh, doing. yeah, yeah. Um, I really think it's worth making a little comparison. Oh, you know, totally. if, if, if anyone, you know, sort of has the time and the interest. If you're um, an active listener of this podcast, I mean, I hope that this podcast gets both active and passive listeners. Right, I right. hope you could listen to it and just like it's on in the background and enjoy it. But I, if you're an active listener in this podcast, we highly recommend that you do this experiment and just see see the comparison. Right, because yeah, even like sort of the mood is the same. It's not just the like reversal. It's like sort of dark chords. The mm-hmm. uh, I guess – that was my main point about the song. I wanted to mention also the uh, how much I like the sort of spooky, high-pitched, warbling thing in the background, uh, which I would describe as, I don't know, do you, do you know what it is? I think it's a theremin. It maybe? might be a theremin, I think so. It might be, there's no telling, but it, it does sound like a theremin. Because it's got that sort of like not quite going on. It might be like, like a modded theremin or something. Right, so like I really like that. It reminded me of um, Ennio, how do you say it, Morricone. Like uh, the guy who did the good and bad and right, ugly right. music, yeah. like it has that sort of like like high pitched whistling, like Western music yes. feel to it. Well, what I'd like to say is, I kind of feel like if this is the reflection of that tour that mm. that I keep talking about, I feel like this is the point for sure where he's giving up on idealism. Like this is like no, 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 no. Osmosis doesn't work. It's never going to work. So whatever it is, whether it's like this relationship he believes he's going to make work over distance or whatever it is, this is him just being like, oh, no. It's it's in in hand with honestly now at the beginning of the album. It's very much like, oh, yeah, then no, let's let's not kid ourselves. Let's. Right. And it's, you know, I mean, osmosis is used in a sort of slangy, casual way of absorption. Usually when people say osmosis, they mean absorption because like osmosis is technically only water. So, but if you're going to use it in a metaphorical way, it's about, you know, absorbing your surroundings, right? Right. Um, So if you're on tour experiencing new things, he's saying basically that these new experiences didn't lead to, I guess, happiness. Or or something different. Fulfillment or whatever. Exactly. Um, Is there any other thoughts you have about osmosis? No, I mean, again, with... Uh, instrumental tracks it's a little hard to talk as extensively but i think even just isolated the track fits the sound of the uh, of the, oh, the track all right well we're going to get into track number 10 god bless america Bless America, probably my absolute favorite song on this album. 
but it's definitely in my top 10 Joan of Arc songs ever and top 20 Tim Kinsella songs ever. Uh, I love this song. So you go ahead and say what you need to say about it. And I, I have plenty to add. Right. I would say, I think in my notes, I wrote that it was one of the standouts. Now, it's a standout musically for me. I do find the lyrics very hard to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, rereading them, I might not get more. And I'm rereading them now, and I'm getting a few things I did not notice. I mean, somehow I read right past Donner Party Conversation, which is brilliant. <laughs> like, I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the best little, like, just toss-off puns in, in a song that I've heard, you know. And again, this this song has a couple of kind of iconic America references, which is appropriate given the song title, but, you know. And I think, I think to an extent, the song title actually is at face value. To an extent. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about the title in, in relation to the song? Well, so if you, we look in the lyrics, here's something interesting. God bless America. And then it says, God bless America as written by nothing. Oh, yeah. And that, Irving Berlin. I think that's just the person that originally wrote the song, God bless America. I don't think he actually uses the right, lyrics Right, but, but what it says, by somebody in Irving Berlin. There's no name there. Yeah. Um, Irving Berlin probably did write the original song, God bless America. I think that's all it is. Uh, and, and someone didn't wasn't sure because I don't remember that uh, – also, in, in the same comment, someone just write, this is a weird song. Just weird. Right. I hesitate to see what they think of some other Joan of Arc. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot more uh, normal than some songs. Also, it says unfolding, right? Yeah, in it's slowly unfolding and all that. Right, it's, so. it's, it says... So in unflooding. These, in, in these lyrics, it says unflooding, spelled incorrectly if you were going to make up a word on flooding yeah you probably have two o's like the word flood does but yes the actual lyric is so slowly unfolding and all that smoke that soap and the smell of your got your mouth got so god so right um so there's a lot of word play and i think some of the lyrics just derive from that and we shouldn't read too much into them because i think it's a lot of linguistic sort of punning it's a lot of linguistic play like especially i mean the way he re repeats lines in this mm -hmm. song like even very early in the so who done it so so who done it so like right. just like so so i mean there's so many ways those so's play off of each other and, right. <laughs> and there's the, the the god so god, god so. so for for the and listener it's Sorry, but for the listener, the line is G O T so G O D so, and then it's like it, it transfers back and forth. It's like got so God so got so God so God bless America. Right, and I think that the, the soap references derive from the so. Right, I think he's playing off so sounding like soap. Mm -hmm. Now, I also think that there are. You know, a woman. I guess we always assume it's a woman, but uh, right. The smell of your mouth. The the romance aspect of this album is is addressed in this song, right? Yeah, and all that soap, right? So I think it's when you're, uh, you know, he mentions kissing earlier in the song. So I think kiss it's and like, talk and Donner Party conversation, right? Yeah. I, I assume in this case, the smell of your mouth. It's sort of a, a laudatory thing. It's. It's a good smell. Like she has good breath. Or it could um, be both, like at different right. times. Right. And then in all that soap, right? Like I think when he's kissing her, it's that soap smell you get off, like, you know, uh, you know, 
women typically like shower more and, and we'll so, use yeah. i shower uh, again we're, we're gonna yeah we're gonna yeah, we're gonna uh, make a disclaimer here about yeah uh, uh, about generalizations right exactly um i mean it was it was positive sexism but it was still <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so i mean there's a lot of but i do think i think the the relationship aspect comes into play mm-hmm. i feel like this is one of the good moments for, of the tour. If this is about a tour, he's just like, holy shit, this country, whatever. I, this whole thing's here. You know, like it, well, there's absolutely. kind of like a statement of amazement still. You know, and and I mean, I, I speak for myself, but I imagine based on some of Tim McConcell's work, he kind of has a – not the same obviously, but some p- political leanings that are similar to mine where it's just like, oh, so many things are wrong with this country but this is still my country. Like, right, right, right. And, and I, I felt that, you know, being a sort of a traveler at times in my life is uh, you go out of the country for a while. Yeah, you hate so much in this country. You hate, you know, just the fact that you don't have free health care, the fact, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. that's just a random example. The fact that, you know, universities now are like a million dollars. But the point is, though, that you go out of the country ultimately one thing you realize is yes it's my home that's my native language that's where all my friends are yeah it's 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 interesting to think about you know being like if you were an exile or if you were somebody who had to leave the country forever for whatever reason it would be heartbreaking to it to like right right great yeah. Extent. like yeah exactly i you would you would uh you would form a new life and you could possibly have a great life but you'd always miss it there'd always be a part of you that was like you know, no matter how much you may hate where you're from, it's where you're from. Right. So, I mean, we're maybe departing from the sort of themes of the song a little bit. But, yeah, I, I do view it as a kind of celebratory song. And and it is at the same time just being like, well, there's these problems. Because especially like the line, that I guess we do what we can, I guess. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, that's about a country as a whole. I guess. I guess we do what we can. <laughs> well, what do you think about the, like, very Houdini escapes safe and chains. Like, okay, I mean, clearly that's interpretable on the level of just talking about Houdini, but well, like, what does it have to do with the song besides well, think, him being American? Well, I think if we're going into the the relationship aspect mm-hmm. part of it, there's that part of him being able to be like, well, this is the relationship I'm in, but when things get bad, I'm on the next bus to so and so. Those right, are, right. those are he he's escaping the safes and chains of a relationship or or that's how he looks at it reflecting upon it now I think you can play it off that aspect I think I think you can look at it as as a political statement to an extent like just going back to like the two faced nature the deceptive nature of the of the political system yeah it's so Houdini so you know like right yeah I mean a politician sort of escape and then so who done it or culpability right yeah, you know? yeah um, exactly like. Yeah, okay, so nobody's willing to take responsibility, so who done it? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, exactly. And then so so did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, but yeah, ex- I mean exactly. I think that's all how how it feels and I love the music. It's definitely one of the more aggressive Joan of Arc songs. Right, right, right. And that and that kind of also plays with the like ah, there's so many problems, but it's still my home. And the music itself plays plays in that theme, I think. So yeah, I think we're in agreement. This is one of the best songs on the album. Um, uh, yeah. 
what else i mean we we both really like this life cumulative i think yeah i think this and this life cumulative are probably the standouts and then to have had two of is the prettiest song on the album right <laughs> right you know and there's other ones i like i enjoy you know white out i enjoyed a pale orange um i enjoyed this whole album from start to finish. i like right. gin and platonic a lot i know you said that wasn't one of your favorites but yeah no if i had to pick like weakest tracks for me it'll be gin and platonic and so open hooray which actually there was one little thing i didn't mention about that one uh-huh. so i bought the album on itunes mm-hmm. um paid money for it not asking for a refund, <laughs> like some other guests, um, but who we won't name. <laughs> but if somebody's actually listening to this podcast regularly, they can figure out who it is. If, or eventually. And, unless to, unless it's just like me and I'm the only one not asking for a refund. Everybody everyone else is, else is like, I need a refund. That's right, what's no, going to happen. But so, so open hooray on my iTunes, like which is the official album version. Right. Is punctuated with a colon, not a semicolon. Mm, that's so, weird because I know that. Remember how I mentioned in that song, there's a solo version. Mm-hmm. I know that whichever the one the solo version is is punctuated differently than the Joan of Arc version. Right, right. So maybe that's the semicolon, or maybe uh, I would assume the one that's on the album that's sold on iTunes is actually correct. Yeah, because I would assume that. I mean, I guess it's probably up to the band. Yeah. I, I don't know how yeah, that I works. Yeah, I don't know how that works at like, all. Like, I've never had an album on iTunes, so if there are listeners yeah, who want to write us. Yeah, please. But that, that that lends a different meaning because if it's so open, semicolon, hooray, it's kind of claiming it's two different songs. Mm-hmm. But if it's so open, colon, hooray, it's kind of claiming the second part is like, you know, an the addendum to, or, yeah, yeah. A subtitle to, uh, you know, so... That's something worth noting or thinking about and clarifying. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I think we should go ahead and move on to the 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 end of this album. The very last track of this album is A Party Able Model. song on the album it's a it's a very fitting last song what what are your thoughts on the meaning or or whatever you have to say about a party able model of yeah i I think it's a great closer for a lot of obvious reasons so the title references you know the previous album you're right that's one cool thing um and then obviously that last lyric which is also the first layer to the song everyone's quiet when the record ends I mean, if you're going to have a song that ends a record, what a great way to end it, you know? Oh, um, yeah. And I think that line is, I think that's line symbolic of tons and tons of things. The The record can be symbolic of this tour we're talking about. Right. This record can also be symbolic of the relationship that happened throughout right. this tour. And then quite literally, it's the end of this, this two-part musical composition. Right, right, right. It's... You know, interesting because it's clearly a relationship song. However, that lyric can be more about the album. It can be a more meta lyric in a way, but uh, I feel like we've overused the word meta. When we look at the verses in between the opening and closing verses, it's cold night staying indoors with a woman. Or trying to stay in. I think that's one of my notes is I think this is 
a struggle a lot of introverts have in relationships. Right. Where they're like, can't we just stay in? And it's like. Yeah, 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 yeah. That so, makes sense. So, because then it's like, but somehow we always end up out. Yeah, yeah. And then it goes into, oh, bar light and smoke. So clearly they're out in public then. And, uh, well, I'd like to, just while you're collecting your thoughts a little bit, point out that the line, the Old Testament in our talk, not only does it kind of close this whole God-Roman Catholicism theme that's been throughout these whole two albums, but it also, in a way, you know, Old Testament gets seen as the, the judgy testament. So it's kind of like being pretentious and judgmental yeah, in a way. But it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's the Old Testament's dark and medieval and it's, you know. Yeah. Full of ugliness and like God's wrath and punishing people. Anyway, so so it's I think it's symbolic and literal in a, mm -hmm. in in some ways. Yeah, I don't really necessarily know. I have a lot more to say about it. Um, what's interesting as well is that you know since everyone's quiet when the record ends, and this is one of the quietest songs on the album. Yeah, it's know, uh, it's for those of you. I mean, obviously there's a little bit of track playing, but for the most part, it's mostly pot, uh, piano and violin or right. cello. Yeah. It's some string instrument and a piano. It's very piano driven. It's very soft. I think it might be a violin. You know, it's it's, it's tough to say. Definitely in that earlier track that we mentioned, which is also a quiet track, mm -hmm. uh, you know, two of had two of. That's that's a cello. I know that for sure. Yeah. This, this one could this, be. <laughs> right. Yeah. It sounds a little higher pitch, so it might be a violin, but I would not be surprised if it was a cello playing on the higher end, you know. And yeah, it's got that it's got the same feel as uh, you know, the other song ends and of mm -hmm. to have had two, two of. To have had two of. Yeah, that's something you were ta talking about before we started recording is that two of these songs have the end in the word. Or did you say that on record? Yeah, you yeah, might have said I, that on the no, recording. Yeah, 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 I did. I did. And like not only do they have the, the both end in the word of, but they have a similar vibe, I would say. Yeah. In terms of just, you know, I guess this instrumentation, sparseness, structure, mm. mood, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, it's it's definitely like, you couldn't think of another song to end this album on this album. Like, this was like, obviously, it almost proves that this album was recorded or written as a complete cohesive statement. Because th this could only be the last song on this album. And I think a lot of places, the track listing is vital. Like, not just as songs go into each other from one another, but th they're definitely like a point. And like you were talking, we were talking about earlier, a reference from one song will be found in a different but similar way in the next song. Then this, this, this song ends the whole referential nature by referencing Joan of Arc again. But this time the band and not the fig historical figure. I think we've kind of come to the end of this track by track. Now that we've gone through this track by track, is there anything else you'd like to say about this album as a whole or any individual songs that you missed throughout the course of this? Yeah, I mean, I did have some general thoughts. One thing that I didn't mention when we talked about A Pale Orange is how it's essentially two different songs, right? So it, it has the, the lyrical part that starts it out, but the song is about six minutes, maybe. Uh, I think it's 6.37. Mm. You can fact check me on that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, you know, the, the last four minutes is instrumental and it's kind of ambient, um, it's that industrial drone part. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, one thing it really reminded me of actually is Pink Floyd. And the reason I thought of that is I listened to another episode of this podcast where Jonathan and... This will be a, a... This is a teaser for a later episode of this podcast, but it'll be... This is episode two. This will be episode four. 
But right. Me, so, me and Jim Fox of Low Pod Tidecast have a chat about the album The Gap. Right, right, right. So, um, again, that was recorded before this one. You'll hear it later. Great episode. Way better than this one. <laughs> oh, no, no. This was great. You, you should just listen to that instead. If you've gotten this far, probably you've already listened to this. I'm sorry <laughs> for not being Jim Fox. <laughs> no, but he was great. The uh, one thing that was discussed on that episode was the gap being highly sort of referential to the wall. Right. Um, and, you know, and you guys speculated about what their overall attitude towards Pink Floyd is, you know, whether mm. it's, you know, dismissive, whether it's positive, whether, you know, I mean, clearly there's a referential quality. I mean, you just have to look at the track names. Yeah. But I thought of that because listening to the second half of A Pale Orange, it really reminded me of some like sort of the more, uh, ambient pink floyd stuff like i don't know how familiar you are with like dark side of the moon that's one i I love pink floyd it's one of the classic rock bands i really enjoy so yeah right yeah and like and i and and, you know for better or worse i have to say that's probably their best album i don't know yeah i I like dark side of the moon and i like the wall and i like their earlier stuff too right you know and they've they've got other good stuff like it's definitely their most focused album right 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 you know i think the wall is a little more like self-indulgent it has weaker moments you know just as a double cd might you know sometimes very well might be why that album is called the gap for (laughs) self-indulgence okay so it's actually this it's actually technically the third song on dark side of the moon it feels like the second because because of the way they have tracks and right an interesting way that connects to this album so it starts with a very short instrumental song Mm mm-hmm and then it has then it has breathe, which everybody knows. Yeah, um, yeah. And but then the third song is also instrumental, and it has this very like electronica sounding kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And a pale orange. The second half of that really reminded me of of that, you know. And again, I don't want to just sort of talk sort of extemporaneously about songs that we're not actually playing right now. But again, it would be one of these situations where I'd recommend sort of. Playing those two things side by side. I think the song is called "On the Run." Yeah, and, um, I think I'm pretty sure it is too. I don't have the information on your phone. Right. Um, yeah. Again, I'm just doing it from memory. I pulled up, you know, the full album "Dark Side of the Moon" and listened to it and found the song, mm-hmm. but it was on YouTube, so there wasn't the track listing. Right. Right. But I believe it's called "On the Run," and um, doing a comparison of those two songs is. You know, they're not identical in any kind of way. It's not a clear reference, but knowing the gap in the wall sort of, you know, similarity and, uh, you know, knowing that this was sort of around the same time period. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, As the gap? Because the gap is what, the fourth album? Yeah, the gap is 2000. This is 98. Right. So, yeah, not too far off. Right. Mm-hmm. This is the second album. The gap is the fourth album. Mm-hmm. So knowing all that, it makes it sort of seem somewhat likely that... You know, he might have been in sort of a Pink Floyd phase. Yeah, that's very, in. very, very possible. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that really covered everything. Yeah, it's kind of weird to sum up by talking about Pink Floyd. <laughs> right. And by talking about one track. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think we both had pretty good interpretations of it, both as a whole piece and individual. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, which is part part of what this podcast is about. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I feel like we hit some stuff that I probably wouldn't have hit with someone else on this. 
And uh, thank you so much for being here to talk about my favorite band. And thank you to the listeners for listening to this. I'd just like to point out that if you want to write in about this album, if you have your own theories or if you filled out notes or whatever, at the very end of this podcast, there will be a, a bumper for the production company, which will give you an email address where you can reach us for all the things that we addressed earlier. I would also like to say that I appreciated doing this, and it gave me sort of a deeper understanding of the album and Joan of Arc. It's it's made me into a little bit of a fanboy. So, um, <laughs> well, good. Then, then, then this podcast is being super effective without right. anyone hearing it. Yet. Ooh, there's one convert at least. <laughs> there's one true con- Roman Catholicism, apparently. <laughs> true. All right. Well, thank you so much again. This has been a pleasure. And yeah, it was brought to you by the BBC. Uh, thank you again. Thanks to everyone. Uh, that's it. is an abandoned mascot production and part of the abandoned mascot network a loose affiliation of podcasts for media arts creators and connoisseurs for more information follow us on twitter at abandonedmasco one that's abandoned m-a-s-c-o and the number one thanks for listening